Lord, pray now that you'd open our eyes to receive from you as we look at the Scripture. Give us understanding, Lord. We ask you to do that in Christ's name. Amen. So let me give you a little model, a little paradigm. Three steps. Number one, God is eternal, unchanging, glorious. He is triune. The Bible reveals him as triune. He is all-powerful. Statement two, uh, God is a communicating God. He has given us the Word of God. He has given us Himself in the person of Christ. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 that God, after He spoke long ago through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son or through His Son. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. So. God is, and God is good, and God is a communicating God in the Scripture and in the person of His Son. Thirdly, if God is is eternal and God is communicating, we have to say, God is good. He is good. He is kind. He's the shepherd king. He's the anointing Holy Spirit. He is our guide. And He desires human flourishing. One of the great joys of studying the Bible and thinking through systematic issues in the Christian faith is you realize that God's desire to be worshiped and glorified and our well-being are one and the same. They're intertwined. Let me just give you a few verses that talk about human flourishing. In Psalm 1, it says that, that if an individual meditates on the Word of God, he will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season and whose leaf never withers and whatever he does will flourish, will prosper. That's the result of walking in the way of the Lord. In Proverbs chapter two, it says this, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for wisdom, if you seek for it, ask for silver and search for it, ask for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the righteous. And he is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So so God stores up wisdom for people who seek him and who love him. And he's a shield, he's a protector to those who seek to walk in obedience before him. The same concept, same word is used, stored up in Psalm 31, verse 19. Listen to this promise. This is so good. It says, oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and who you've worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. God has stored up goodness for his people and he bestows that goodness in the sight of mankind. Or in the New Testament, First Timothy says this, that don't have anything to do with silly myths and gossip. Instead, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For, he says, for, for bodily discipline ha, has some profit. Bodily discipline is good, but godliness holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Or John 10.10, 10, you know this verse well. Christ says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Or John 8, Verse 31 says, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I, I look at just these smattering of verses that talk of and speak of the incredible 
blessing that comes upon the children of God as they follow him. Matthew 11, come to me, Jesus says, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Rest, refreshment. I've been reading some, a couple of books and some articles by a guy named Anthony Esselin, who's a professor of English, I think at Providence College, Providence University, and he talks about purity, not in do's and don'ts, but purity is having an unclouded vision of reality in the presence of the living God. And he says this, we, we will cure none of these ills in our culture or in ourselves, not one, unless we rediscover the virtue of purity, which is a single-hearted vision. And we will not rediscover that virtue unless our imaginations are engaged by its beauty. I think he's right. Until our, our imaginations and our thoughts are engaged and hit by the beauty and grandeur of God, we'll not be the people we've called, been called to be. So we come to the book of Colossians, and we've been rehearsing this. There's a group of people in Colossae that said, if you really want to discover the power of God, and if you really want to have a relationship with God, then you've got to do three things. Number one, you've got to beat your body. You've got to beat yourself. You've got to be an extreme ascetic. And number two, you've got to have angel guides that are mediators that will bring you into the presence of God. And they'll kind of introduce you to God because you need all these mediators, a chain of angels. And, and, and if you really want to be right with God, then you've got to have private visions. You've got to have these subjective visions that speak to you key words and secret words. So you've got to beat your body. You've got to have mediators. You've got to have private visions. And Paul says to that, baloney, balderdash, don't go for it. In fact, Paul says, if you buy into that, chapter 2, verse 17, then you will lose connection with the head, with Jesus. You'll minimize the cross. And Christ energizes the whole body through its ligaments and muscles as he gives the power. He says, Paul says, instead, I'm going to show you how to beat the stranglehold of sin. I'm going to show you how to beat the paralyzing nature of being enthralled by the world. And then he jumps into chapter 3, and he says this, if then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things above, not, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. He says, you know, this is how you beat the stranglehold of sin. You, you understand your union with Christ, that you've been forgiven, you've been adopted, you've been raised with Christ, you've been baptized into Christ, you are his child by faith, you are in Christ. Everything that Christ is and has, you also possess by virtue of who he is in your life. It's an incredible comment. Our union with Christ. And we talk about that a lot. I said last week we talk about justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, not our works. We talk about that. We talk about our adoption, I think, a good bit. We talk about uh, our sin has been canceled by the blood of the cross. We, we, we talk about our union with Christ. But then the other concept in chapter 3, verse 1 and 4, I, I feel that I don't talk about much, that it's not at the forefront of my mind, and that is this, the hope of heaven. If then you've been raised with Christ, again, set your hearts on the things above. Verse 1, verse 4, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So, so it's, 
is this dual focus. It is empowered living flows from our union with Christ and the hope of heaven. So, as we think about that, we need to think about what heaven is not and what it is, very quickly. What it is not. There's a cartoon, I don't think you can see it very well, I don't have to read it to you, but it's, uh, uh, it shows two different realities, people going to heaven and people going to hell. And the top one says, welcome to heaven, here is your harp. And the bottom one says, welcome to hell, here is your accordion. Now, no, no offense to people who play the accordion, who like polka music, who have a Polish background. I'm, I'm, we're not, but it's just that we, we make jokes about heaven and hell. And then we think that, you know, heaven is some type of a 24-hour praise service where we sing Maranatha music uh, and, and, uh, with, with unending, ongoing reality. And then that's not what heaven is like. I mean, heaven will be very much about worship. Heaven will be very much about the glory and the majesty and seeing Jesus face to face. So, wow. There's a book called The Adventures of, of Huckleberry Finn by a man named Mark Twain. And in the book, we meet this lovable character named Huckleberry Finn. And Huckleberry Finn is being accosted by an old spinster who is a church lady named Miss Watson. And Miss Watson is always giving Huckleberry Finn down the road because of the way he lived. And so this is the dialogue in the book. And it says this, I think we have it. Yep. She, should be the one she, maybe it's that one. I see. It says, uh, she went on and told me, Huckleberry Finn, about the good place, heaven. And she said all a body would have to do there was to go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. And Huckleberry says, I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned that Tom Sawyer would go there. And she said, not by a considerable sight. And Huck says, I was glad because I wanted him and me to be in the same place together. <laughs> so what, what is heaven not like? It is not Mrs. Watson's view. There's a man named H.L. Mencken, who was a famous journalist from Baltimore, lived in the late uh, 1900s, 20th century, and he, he said this, that, that Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And I take deep offense to that because I love the Puritans and I think it's a total misrepresentation of the Puritans. The Puritan century was 1550 to 1650 and they were happy, glad-hearted, uh, embracive, loving. You, you read some of the books about the Puritan pastors about how much they love their wives and it's almost R-rated. I mean, they were glad-hearted people, but you, you know, that, you get that impression. Let me tell you what heaven is like in miniature. Go outside, look at the greens and multiply it times a thousand. Look at the blues of the sky. It's a beautiful blue sky. Multiply that blue times a thousand. When you have your Thanksgiving meal, multiply that sweet potato casserole by a thousand. That stuffing by a thousand. Those twice baked potatoes by a thousand. See, that's what I like. That's what I like. When you have the embrace of a friend after worship service or a loved one, multiply it by thousand. I was walking the halls this morning and there's a man walking down the hall and he had three grandkids here and I heard him say, granddaddy, and they went charging up the hall to love him, hug him. I thought, man, that is sweet. Multiply that by a thousand. 
That is the glory of heaven. See, now, part of our problem, I said this last week, part of our problem is that we live in the low country of South Carolina, and it's 1830, and we've never been outside the low country of South Carolina, and we're trying to explain to somebody in 1830 what the Himalayas looked like. That's a mountain called Fishtail, the third highest mountain in the Himalaya chain. So, so we're trying to explain without a video or a picture book uh, what the Himalayas are like. So we have to pray that God will give us rich imaginations and an understanding about the glory and the majesty of heaven. And I believe as I read the Bible more and more that, that one of the primary means of growth in, in Christ is to understand the glory of heaven. Yesterday we were coming here for a three o'clock wedding. Yesterday was a beautiful day. Uh, November the 18th, Charleston, South Carolina. And we've been outside working most of the day and we were coming here and we were talking and we were going to this wedding of a young, wonderful young godly couple and it was a joyful celebration. It was just fun. And we stopped on one point at the stoplight and we were talking all of a sudden two young people ran across the intersection. They were jogging. And I said to my wife, can you look at what they're wearing? She said, what? I said, nothing scandalous. They're dressed appropriate. They're, they're wearing short sleeve shirts and shorts on, on November the 18th in Charleston. It is 74 degrees. That's sweet. You, you take that day yesterday that was beautiful and today multiply times a thousand and you begin to get in the realm of heaven. We've got to have imaginations that are rich here, folks. So as, as you think about that, you think about this incredible quote in the bulletin from C.S. Lewis from the book Mere Christianity. This, this quote, I'm just going to read it because it is so good. He says, hope is one of the theological virtues, the hope of heaven. And he says, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals, i.e. William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And then this great sentence. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that we have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at earth or heaven, and you will get earth thrown in, aim at earth, and you will get neither. Now, that's a great quote. And, and Lewis says, he says, it's, it's, it's because we've ceased to think about the glories of heaven, I'm going to say, or the reward of heaven, that we've become ineffective in this world. And so why, why, why is it important to think this way? Number one, it's important to think this way very quickly because we will be people of joy because we realize that death is not the final word. Proverbs 17, 22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Let me ask you this, are you, are, do you have a joyful spirit today? Do you have a joyful spirit in part because you realize that death is not the final word? Think of the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 
where the Apostle Paul talks about, verse 10, this statement, he says, we are people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You know, think about that. We are sorrowful but always rejoicing. That, that's life in a fallen world. In the same book, in chapter 4, he talks about the fact that we have this wonderful gospel in jars of clay, jars of clay that are brittle and breaking down, to show that the all-surpassing power is not from us, but it's from the Lord. And he goes on and says, you know, we're, we're people who are uh, afflicted, but we're not crushed. Yeah. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And now why? Letter in the text, it says this, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He says the, the, the reason we're perplexed but not despairing, the reason we're struck down but not abandoned, we, we, we're knocked to the canvas, sure, but we get up, is because we know that there is a glorious day coming when we will be raised with one another in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and heaven awaits. So, so I have a list in my prayer folder of uh, people, I do this every year, who've lost a loved one from last year's Thanksgiving Day through today. A parent, child, sibling, spouse. Two pages in this, this church, two, two pages. And this Thanksgiving will be very hard for a lot of people. Some people will for the fifth or eighth or ninth year realize that there's not someone at the table they really wish could be there. And it's gonna be sorrowful yet rejoicing. Sorrowful because parting is difficult, but rejoicing because to die in the Lord is to be in the presence of Christ. So, so that's one reason heaven is important. The, the second reason, this is what I'm talking about this morning, is to be heavenly minded means that I understand the applause of heaven. The applause of heaven. Let me explain. One of the battle verses of the Christian is in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 6. It says this, and without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever draws near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Okay. He rewards those who seek Him. Say, well, how does he reward us? Well, he rewards us in power, with his presence, with his uh, an, uh, abiding sense of his mercy. He's, you go hard after God, you get a clear vision of God, and, and he rewards us, listen to me, in the eternity to come. He, he rewards us into, in the eternity to come. So he rewards us with his, with his presence, with his power, and in the eternity to come. I was here Friday night walking around and there was a pretty large group in the gym. Someone in the gym kind of stood in the corner and watched, and it was called, it's called what we call respite night. Respite. It happens six times a year. There's a group of people in our, that work with our, our special, our friends class, our special needs, and they have a, a, a four-hour get-together where they feed our, our special needs children and uh, foster children and adopted children. Uh, food, and they play games, and they give mom and dad a chance to go out and have four hours by themselves. 
And maybe they just go to the parking lot and sleep. I don't know, but they have four hours to, to, to be together. And, and, and I, I stood there and watched them, and they're playing with the kids and talking to the kids, and some of them are on their knees making sure they're communicating, they're eating the pizza. And, and I thought, wow, most of them are young singles doing this. And I thought, great is your reward in heaven. God rewards us. I, so I want you to understand this. This is the symbol of the United States of America. Just for fun, this was the symbol that Ben Franklin wanted. You can't see it very well, but it is the parting of the Red Sea in the book, from the book of Exodus. That's what Ben Franklin wanted. Because Ben Franklin said, if the American experience lasts, it will be a miracle from God. Ben Franklin. So anyway, more about Ben Franklin in a few minutes. But anyway, this, this is the symbol on your dollar bill, for example. It is a seeing eye at the apex of the pyramid. In other words, the founding fathers were saying that we will answer to the God who is. We'll give an account to God. So some of these history books that say the founding fathers were all atheists and agnostics, that's just not true. It's just not true at all. They, were, they, they believed in a great God. Most of them were not evangelicals. Don't believe the other books. Just read, read good history. So, so these, these men believed that there was a seeing eye. Now, I understand this. Okay. If you are a Buddhist or a Hindu, there is a seeing eye, and that seeing eye will determine what form or what level of society you inhabit in your next life transmigration based upon how you live today. So they believe in reincarnation, and you come into a higher state, and this, and then you're absorbed into the universe. Okay, so, so there's a Sinai that weighs your good deeds and bad deeds, and determines your standing with the God, whoever he is as you define him. If you are an Islamic person, you believe there is a Sinai, a God who watches over you, and at the end of your days, your deeds are put onto a balanced scale, and if the good deeds outweigh the bad, maybe you get into heaven. They don't, they don't know. Really, the same is true with, with, with people who call themselves Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses, of, spinoffs of, of the Christian faith. For us, man, I want you to get this, okay? Please get this. For us who are gospel-believing people, who understand the reality of Christ, there is a seeing eye, but it is not to judge. It is a seeing eye of Abba Father who loves us in the person and work of Christ. We do not busy ourselves to earn the favor of God, we busy ourselves out of gratitude for what God has done for us in the person of Christ and because he's poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts. So it's not a seeing eye of judgment. It is the eye of Abba Father who loves his children. You've got to get that. Benjamin Franklin was, was incredibly gifted. I mean, he was just brilliant. If there was a men, had been a men's society, he would have been at the top of the chart in IQ, no doubt about it. Benjamin Franklin died at the age, I think, 82, 83. I'm gone, I, don't, I can't remember, but he was the oldest member of the Continental Congress, uh, an incredible mind, a great wit, and he was, through the years, a very dear friend of a man named George Whitfield. George Whitfield was uh, the evangelist from England who came to the U.S. eight, nine times and spearheaded the first great awakening, preached the gospel of Christ. I mean, preached the gospel of Christ. It was said of George Whitfield, who was such a gifted orator, that the leading actor of, of his day in England said, I would give all of my money if I could say, 
Mesopotamia like George Whitfield. He was just a gifted guy. He became great friends with George Whitfield. In fact, George Whitfield, excuse me, with Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin made a famous comment. He says, when I hear George Whitfield preach, I always try to go without money. He says, because at the end of the service, Whitfield will ask for an offering, and usually the sermon has been so good, I empty my pockets of all I have to give to George Whitfield and his orphanage release funds. So, so he was, they, they were great friends. George Whitfield, if you read the correspondence between Franklin and Whitfield, and, and Whitfield died in 1775. So if you, if you read their correspondence, uh, Whitfield's always saying, have you considered the reality of Christ, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father? Do you understand what Christ has done for those who come to him? I mean, he was always having the gospel. George Whitfield was Billy Graham on steroids. For those of us a little bit older, he was the man. On top of that, Franklin had a, was raised in a Christian home. He had a, a sister named Jane who was a bold, lion-hearted, evangelical Christian who preached the gospel to her brother until he died. So he heard the gospel. And yet on his deathbed, he's, he, he receives an inquiry from a man named Ezra Stiles, who's the president of Yale College. And Ezra Stiles asked him about his faith and about what he believes. And this is what Edward says just, excuse me, Franklin says just a few weeks before he dies. He says, uh, here is my creed. Yeah, here, here's my creed. Listen to this. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshiped, that, that the most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice and another life respecting his conduct in this. See that? The seeing eye is watching over me, and, it's, and I, my acceptance before God is based upon what I do. And I'm going to maybe take a side road. This is a side road, doesn't do a deal with this. I'll come back to this. But it's, it's, it's a response in the same letter. And he, and he goes on to say this. He says, you've asked about my attitude toward Jesus of Nazareth. This, to me, this is amazing. This is amazing. I read this and I think, only the Holy Spirit can open eyes. Franklin is brilliant, and he's heard the gospel time after time. He says, as to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. Gandhi said the same thing, by the way. A great moral teacher. Then he goes out and says this. Some doubt, in my, some doubt, some doubt's mine, as to his divinity, his being God in the flesh. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, no firm opinion. Having never, never studied it, never studied it. No, 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 no. You, you, you've been best friends with George Whitfield, and Jane has been preaching to you for decades. So I think that's a little bit disingenuous. Having never studied it, and think, and think it needless needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. And what he's saying is, soon I'll die. And he did, just a few weeks. And then I will know for certain if Jesus is who he claimed to be. You see, let me tell you something. I look at that and I go, God have mercy on my contemporaries. So you're looking at the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He says, I'm just not sure that. I'm, I'm going to want to think about that. Man, you better know what you think about that. 
You're looking at the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You better know what he meant by that. Or before Abraham was, I am. Or destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. You, you better understand these things. So I just, I just go, good grief. So that's a side road. I just, I read that, I thought, man. So, so just two questions. Number one, do you have the hope of heaven? Do you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Have you, have you accepted his gift? Have you repented of your sin and run to the cross? Do you know that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God? And I, I say to my Christian friends here, are you understanding the applause of heaven? That there will be rewards in eternity. Let me just read a passage that doesn't read, need much of an explanation. It's in the worship guide. It's, it's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 and following. Paul says in verse 11, there is one foundation. One, one foundation. It's Christ for the believers. One foundation, Christ and Him crucified. And then he talks about how we build on it. This, this incredibly picturesque statement. He, he says... Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or costly stones, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as only through the fire. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know, there's one foundation, is Christ. And, and you come along as a believer. You've trusted in Christ. And, and as a believer, you're either building on this foundation with gold, silver, and costly stones, or wood, hay, and straw. And on the great day of judgment, the way you've lived your life will be displayed. If you've built with gold, silver, and costly stones, you'll receive a reward from the King of glory. Now, it's, it's all of grace. But if you were halfway in your obedience at times and halting, and if you didn't repent quickly and you didn't do the right thing, wood, hay, and straw, you will survive, but as one escaping through the flames. To me, that's it's just like the parable of the talents in the Gospels. Jesus says a man was given a talent. He brought ten back, and he got ten more. Five, he brought five back, got five more. It's all about our faithfulness unto the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we get in heaven by grace, but there will be a judgment of rewards. And it should motivate us to live with joy and expectation and repentance and be busy about the things of the Lord. Jonathan Edwards, a quote from Jonathan Edwards in the worship guide, he says this, he says, there, there are differences, degrees of happiness and glory in heaven. And then he says, it will not be a damp to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that, that there are others advanced in glory above them, for all shall be perfectly happy. We're in heaven. There's no envy in heaven. 
No, no, th- 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 there are others who are more advanced in glory in them. They're perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout. And what Edwards is saying is like we're, we're, we're vessels in an ocean. Some have more water. It's all by grace, but there is the applause of heaven. There are people sitting around you here and in the worship center. You'll pass them in the hallway. And they'll just appear to be normal people. You may even know them. But if you really knew the way they've honored Christ, the way they care and serve and give, the way they have been forgiving to an abusive parent or prayed for a spouse that's just hard to live with or loved and cared for a child that has broken their heart day after month after year after year. They appear to be normal, but in God's kingdom, they're generals and admirals. And you would be tempted to worship them if you could really see who they are. Do you understand the applause of heaven? A few stories. So for years after I got here, there was a dear woman here named Eleanor Johnson. And some of you who've been here a while remember her. Eleanor was... When we first got here, she was the gum lady. There were no kids in the church, and this kids started coming, and so she went out and she bought gum, and she gave gum to all the children when they came in the door. Well, we started finding gum in the carpet and gum on pews, and so we had to ask her to retire as the gum lady. And she became the bread lady. She made bread and gave it out. Uh, a wonderful woman. Selfless, kind, gracious. I love her. I remember her memory. I I have said on numerous occasions, and not out of self-modesty, humility is not something I struggle with. I have said, I hope when we get to heaven that Eleanor will let me visit her subdivision from my subdivision. And I'm serious. And she will greet me with gum and bread. I'm sure. Listen, we are going to be surprised in heaven. I had the privilege of being in a group called the Gospel Coalition. We meet once a year and talk about issues and have papers presented and so forth and so on. And, and, and there's some leaders in the evangelical community that are part of that, and I hang out with them, and uh, they've written a lot of books, and I've read lots of books. That's the difference. You know, people like Tim Keller and D.A. Carson, John Piper, Al Mower. They're wonderful men, and I, 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 I'm glad to know them, but don't be overly impressed. They're being faithful to their calling. They're normal guys. We are going to be surprised. Are you, are you faithfully living your calling before God? So I'm a young man. I'm in Singapore and Southeast Asia. I lived there two years, and uh, a couple of stories. I, I'm asked to a family in our church has a man who's coming through who's a friend of theirs, retiring from Pakistan, going back to India. Uh, he's in his late 70s, and 
They said, you know, we're, we've got something going on tonight. Would you mind taking him out? I said, I'm not sure. I'd love to take him out. I'm 23, 24. So I take him out, and he's, he's an old, old, old guy. He's in the late 70s. And uh, I talked to him, and he's from Pakistan. Now, listen, Pakistan, there's a world persecution index about where persecution is most horrific among Christians, for Christians. And number one is North Korea. Number two is Somalia on the Horn of Africa. Number three is Afghanistan. Number four is Pakistan. Pakistan is a tough place. So he's been in Pakistan over 40 years. He's buried his wife in Pakistan. He's nurtured his children in Pakistan. They're now in Canada and England. And I'm sitting there and I'm having supper with him. I said, well, you're a church planner in Pakistan. Yes, and a teacher. I said, well, how many, how many people did you see come to faith in 40 years? He says, well, I'm pretty sure it was around 35. And I went, I was thinking, 35, I'm a young guy. I mean, we can get 35 kids to raise their hand at a junior high rally if you offer free pizza. That's solid evangelical theology. And as we talked, even as a young guy, I realized I'm in the presence of greatness. I walk among you guys, and there are times when I realize I'm in the presence of greatness. Another story, I'm living with a missionary family in Singapore, delightful family, wonderful, wonderful family. And they, they say, Buster, I just want to alert you that we have, you know, we have an extra bedroom. We have a, a missionary nurse from Indonesia coming in to spend a few days with us here in Singapore for rest and relaxation. She's kind of, well, she's, she's very depressed. And she was an older woman. Her name was Everly Hayes. And what happened, she was a nurse in Indonesia, and she was in this hospital in Jakarta area, and some Muslim jihadists had planted a bomb in the men's room, and the security guard discovered it the next day, and the battery acid had eaten through the detonation wire. If the detonation wire had been good to go, it would have blown up the hospital and several homes around them, and they would have all died. And he said, it's bringing back bad memories. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, Everly Hayes, was the nurse of this man in China. His name is Bill, Bill Wallace. You can't see him very well. Bill Wallace was a, a single man from Tennessee who felt called of God to go into medical missions. He goes to China as a very young surgeon, never marries. He's there. He stays in China during the Second World War as the Japanese occupied his area and just loved people and cared for them. as a selfless guy. And he stays there after the Second World War during the communist uprising. And, and they left him alone because he was helping people. But one day, some communist thugs searched the hospital, went into his apartment, and they found a handgun under his pillow, which was not his. It was planted. And they brought him, brought him out and accused him of being a CIA spy for the American government. And they took him into prison, and they routinely beat him. And one day, they beat him so hard that he died. And so to cover up their atrocity, they took his belt and they put it around his neck, and they hung him from the rafter. After he'd signed a confession of being a CIA spy because they beat him to almost to death. And so Everly Hayes, this man told me, had to go to the prison and claim his body. And he says, that's always haunted her. And so she came to the house, and she was really shell-shocked. And I had breakfast and lunch with her and just listened to her. She didn't talk much. But as years go by, I realized, church, I was in the presence of greatness. And not, not because 
missionaries in Pakistan, not because they saw a, a, a friend martyred, but because they're faithful. I walk among people who are great here, and I thank you for it. Some of you I know, some of you I don't know. And let me tell you, we're going to be surprised in heaven. So two questions. Number one, if you're not a believer, please consider the hope of heaven. If you have the all-seeing eye of Benjamin Franklin's God, or the God of Islam, or the God of Hinduism, or the God of Buddhism, the Bible says you don't measure up. The Bible says that all-seeing eye will expose your sin. But if you know the reality of Christ, and your sins are covered, the all-seeing eye is the eye of Abba Father who loves you and who's getting ready to welcome you, and there will be an applause in heaven. So, 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 so I ask those of you who are believers, is the hope of heaven leading you to a life of joy and repentance and service and celebration and sacrifice? You know, when Bill Wallace died years later, the communist government allowed some Christians to go in outside the hospital where he served for almost 35 years. And, and they, they put up a, a portrait, the still there, a portrait of, of Bill Wallace. And they put up a sign, in Chinese of course, from Philippians 1.21 that says, for me to live is Christ. See, it's there today. But I, 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 I think about that and I thought, tell the rest of the verse. Because the rest of the verse makes it much sweeter. For me to live is Christ, and what? To die is gain. <laughs> That's what it says. And not trying to be overly funny, but put anything else in that verse. For me to live is blank, and to die is gain. And it just doesn't make sense. For me to live is my family, and to die is gain. That comes pretty close. But it, for me to live is the your political party, and to die is game, not even close. For me to live is your favorite sports team, and to die is game, no. It, it just, it's Christ. It's Christ, and to die is game. In the same passage, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I, I want the hope of heaven to really motivate me more. And part of the hope is understand that death is not the final word, and also understanding that Abba Father watches over me and there will be rewards in heaven based upon your calling and your faithfulness unto the things of God. So thanks, thanks be to God. Thank you for the way you live. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, your people and the sheep of your pasture. And I, I thank you. There's only one foundation, and that's Christ. And we will say that loudly. But I also thank you that the Bible says that, that we can build upon the foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones or wood, hay, and straw. So I really pray that we'd be busy about the things of God. We would love people, we would serve, we would care, we would give, we would be stewards of the energy and the goodness you've given us because a great day is coming and the day will bring it to light. I just thank you that I live among people who are really admirals and generals in your army and I don't even know it. I don't even know it. I thank you for the applause of heaven. I thank you for your goodness. During this Thanksgiving week, we thank you because you're good, so good. Lead us, guide us. Lord, speak Christ to our friends. Speak Christ through us to our family this week.
as we are together. Speak Christ to our friends through us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.